everyone. Anne Louise Gittleman here once again with the First Lady of Nutrition podcast, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Joshua Levitt, who is a naturopathic physician and teaches at the Yale School of Medicine. How are you today, Dr. Josh? I am doing great, Anne Louise. It's so, such a pleasure to be here with you. The pleasure is mine. So I have many questions to ask you. You know, I I found you exceedingly engaging and so articulate when you hosted the Escape Alzheimer's Summit. Tell me some of the important enlightening information that you learned from that summit, all about Alzheimer's that many of us are not aware of. Well, first of all, thank you for the kind words. I, I appreciate that, uh, that you found me articulate and engaging there. And um, I'm re- <laughs> I feel so grateful that a lot of the feedback that I've received from people who watched it, including actually from a conventional physician who I spoke on the phone with yesterday, um, felt similarly. And it, it, it's, just, it's great to put stuff out in the world like that um, and have it received and appreciated in that way. So thank you for that. Um, to your question, what did I learn? Oh gosh, I interviewed um, about a dozen experts uh, in various different domains who all have sort of a unique perspective on Alzheimer's disease. Um, this tragic illness, which is often said to kill people twice First, by by robbing them of sort of who they are by taking away their memory, and then uh, and then death comes in its in its more classical sense, um, and it's such a freaky and frightening thing, right? Because there's this massive investment in billions and billions of dollars of scientific inquiry and research into into treatments um, for prevention and or cure, and it's yielded basically nothing, right? There's just nothing out there, um, and so people are rightfully afraid. And yet, when you go around and talk to these different experts, some of them MDs, some of them naturopathic doctors, some of them in that holistic, various places in that holistic medicine world, it becomes quite clear that there is indeed a lot of research that this illness can in, can be prevented. And it can be prevented using some rather simple um, across the board dietary and lifestyle interventions. Um, and so I think if I took away anything from this is that there is room for optimism and hope even in a landscape that is littered with pharmaceutical failures. And I think that's the primary message that I got from the experts that I, that I talked to. I love it. Are there any particular foods that we should be aware of or supplements that you found increasingly interesting? There's, so I, I think it's a great question um, and it's a big question. The, the, when it comes to foods, there's, there's no question that there is a dietary pattern that is associated with decreased risk. In fact, another paper, even after the, I was done recording the Escaping Alzheimer's series, um, came out that, that, that further verified this, that using any, there was, there was five different parameters that they looked at, it, which included a diet, and the diet involves a minimally processed, whole foods, plant-based type of diet. That's the type of diet pattern, and I, and I, I emphasize the word pattern because really patterns of eating are more important than any individual thing that one should include or avoid. Now, of course, there are categories of foods, things like berries, which are rich in polyphenols, bioflavonoids, antioxidants that are brain healthy kinds of foods. Also nuts uh, with their high concentrations of, uh, of healthy oils. But all of that fits into that broader pattern of minimally processed whole foods, from the earth in the way that they were that they were they you know that they came out of the earth um, 
and uh, and plant-based, which does not mean plant exclusive, but it means the foundation should be should be plant. So that's the dietary pattern that's most associated with decreased risk. Was there any particular supplement that we should be aware of that we'll see more information about in the future? Do you think, Dr. Josh? I think the answer is yes, uh, and there are several. Um, there is quite a lot of research about vitamin D, which I know you know a lot about and have talked to others about as well. Um, optimizing vitamin D levels is important for a healthy brain, a healthy body, a healthy immune system, um, and, and so many people are deficient uh, in vitamin D. So that one comes up a lot. Um, a littler known nutrient, um, which is actually part of ourselves, part of the sort of whole interstellar universe uh, that came up in uh, with one of our experts, uh, James Greenblatt, is, uh, is lithium, the micronutrient lithium. People think of lithium as a drug, and indeed it is um, used in a different form. Lithium carbonate is used to treat uh, uh, certain types of mental illness, especially bipolar, but lithium orotate, the naturally occurring form, which is found in soil, uh, is also increasingly believed to have a role to play in uh, in the prevention of Alzheimer's disease. So that's another fascinating one that you don't hear a lot about in conventional medicine at all. And you know, thanks to escaping Alzheimer's and your interview with Dr. James Greenplatt, I'm going to interview him on our podcast because I found the lithium connection extremely fascinating. So thank you for, thank you for reminding me. But, but yeah, you got a good catch there. He's a he's a he's a winner. He's a he's a lovely guy, and uh, you'll have to tell tell him I send my regards when you talk to him. I will. He's a nutritional psychiatrist. Am I correct? Indeed. Yes. He's he's a, he's a psychiatrist, and he's fell into this uh, this research world of lithium and the impact of it on uh, on psychiatric illness. And he's, uh, he's a leading expert in the field. He's going to be a fascinating interview. Well, thank you. Now, back to you, this fascinating naturopathic doctor that I'm interviewing. You run a natural family medicine practice. What are you seeing in your practice these days? Are there any patterns of health we should be aware of? The, yes, um, I do. I run a practice. There's five doctors here, um, and it, it, the, the patients that come here run the gamut. Um, to talk a little bit about what naturopathic medicine sort of means, what, what we see, I think, are three distinct patterns, um, and I'm sure you could appreciate this. One is a person who comes in who has um, a similar disposition to probably yours and mine, which is that they like natural medicine as a primary healthcare tool. These are people who are already inclined to eat well, already inclined to live a healthy lifestyle. They might uh, meditate. They might wear Birkenstocks or tie-dyes, you know, that, that, that's what they already the shop. Yes. You know the type. They already shop at Whole Foods Market. And, and those people come in here with, with a primary complaint, right? We are the first doctors that they see with that problem. They want to get a natural perspective on it first. And that could be anything from their ear hurts, they have a rash, they found a lump, they have whatever the problems are across the spectrum of what we might call primary care. So that's category A. Um, and, then, and then the next category is really, I would say, a, a polar opposite of that. And this is the person who we wish came to us sooner. This is the person who is not inclined towards natural medicine. They maybe heard something about us or got a referral from a friend or family member or even one of their the conventional physicians. And they are, and I say this lovingly and with kindness, a train wreck, um, a train wreck of health problems, often severe, um, chronic, complex, overlapping one problem onto another. They've tried all kinds of different things. They're on lists of medications that are 12, 15, sometimes 20 medications long, and it still hurts. They're still suffering. They still have a problem. And now they're looking for a solution in the natural medicine realm, 
after, right, at the end of the line as compared to that first group who sees us at the front of the line. And so it makes for a very interesting day, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. So I have questions with regard to naturopathic medicine and naturopathic doctors. If you were to describe the differences between an ND and an MD, could you give me the, the top five differences? I, I, I know that there is... There's very extensive training, and there are only a certain number of accredited schools. Could you cover the gamut of the naturopathic world? Yeah, absolutely. I'll do my best. There's uh, right now. There's about six thousand naturopathic doctors that are meet the same criteria that I did. They've they've gone to one of those accredited schools. Uh, they've passed a national certifying board examination, and then they're in clinical practice in in uh, any of the fifty states. Right now, by the way, there's some interesting legal and legislative things happening. We have 22 states that license naturopathic doctors. I live in Connecticut, which happens to be one of those states. I'm grateful for that. So I have a license on the wall that says naturopathic physician. Um, we are regulated by the Department of Health in this state, but there are other states. You know, there's only 22 states that license naturopathic doctors now, and that number is ever increasing every year uh, that don't license naturopathic doctors at all. And that makes for a tricky regulatory landscape. Um, we can get into that further if that's of interest. But as to the clinical practice, you're right to suggest that naturopathic doctors are extensively trained, lots of didactic training, four years of all of the ologies, right? You know, basic biochemistry, anatomy, physiology, and then all the specialties, endocrinology, gastroenterology, cardiology, etc. Um, and then during the last two years of that four-year curriculum uh, is clinical training in in the the institution of the the academic institution itself and related clinics in some cases hospitals in the in the area and what it leads to the modern naturopathic doctor i think is distinct from conventional medicine in that well, there's some overlap. The overlap, of course, is that we are conventionally trained. We understand how to order laboratory tests, uh, order chest x-rays and that sort of thing, kind of practice in primary care, depending on the state that we're in. But then we have this broad and diverse training in the natural medicine arena, which includes nutrition, which includes extensive training in botanical herbal medicine, uh, which includes physical medicine, whether or not doctors apply those techniques, that's sort of... Um, chiropractic, physical therapy, massage therapy wrapped into a, a, a field we call naturopathic body work. Some practitioners use homeopathy as a tool. And there's a bunch of different modalities that certain physicians kind of um, lean into. So you have a kind of conventional medical scientific based background um, and then the overlay of all the natural sciences as well. What did, what did you specialize in? I'm just curious, where did you go to school to? Uh, so I did my training. At, so my education started at UCLA. Um, I have a degree in neurophysiology from UCLA. That was my undergraduate work. And then from there, I went to uh, Bastyr University, uh, which is in Seattle, Washington area, North, North Seattle area. Um, it's considered uh, the sort of premier natural medicine training institute, really, really in the world at this point, beautiful botanical gardens, top tier faculty. Uh, and so I did four years of medical school there where, where I earned my doctorate in naturopathic medicine. And then I did two years of residency training in a, what we call an integrative medical center where you have multidisciplinary providers, conventional physicians, um, practicing primary care and kind of urgent care, uh, and then a whole list of um, holistic, alternative uh, naturopathic doctors. There was acupuncturists there, chiropractors there, homeopaths, people that did all sorts of different things. So I got to be this young resident rotating around and, and learning that there's 
a lot of different ways to approach the same illness, right? The same illness when presented to an acupuncture might get a certain treatment plan. When presented to an urgent care, MD might get a certain treatment plan. And um, it really fostered an appreciation for the idea that there's lots of different ways to treat medical problems and they're, they're all useful. So if, if somebody were to come to you as a, as a patient, are there particular functional medicine tests that you would initially order or does it depend upon the presenting symptoms? So in, I can't speak for everybody. I can speak for, for myself and my training and the way I've approached it in the last 20 years. And it, it's a great question. There are lots of people who will find their way into a naturopathic doctor's office, a functional medicine doctor. Those are usually MDs who have taken on this sort of natural um, uh, approach to their practices who will just uh, shotgun and order all kinds of different labs, often totaling uh, in the thousands of dollars before you're done, you know, even receiving the results. I, and I'm not saying better or worse or judging anybody for the way they practice. I don't off operate that way. The way I operate is to take a thorough and comprehensive history, do uh, an appropriate physical exam, start with the basics, especially if those basics are covered by insurance. There can be a lot that can be learned through conventional laboratory stuff, the kind of lab tests that you might get from your local laboratory, complete blood count, comprehensive metabolic, thyroid screens, that sort of thing. Um, and then I order labs according to I'm going to describe a, a briefly a sort of a principle that I think more doctors should think about and, and reflect on in their training. Sure. Laboratory tests and imaging, um, these sorts of things that we are capable of ordering, should be ordered, number one, to confirm or to refute a clinical suspicion. So what that means is, let's, I'll give you an example. I mentioned chest x-rays a minute ago. Someone comes in, they have a cough. And they don't feel good. I listen to their lungs. Their lungs don't sound so good, I, you know, with a stethoscope. I'm concerned that they might have pneumonia. That's my clinical suspicion. And now I need to order a test to confirm or to refute my suspicion that they have pneumonia. And that test is a chest x-ray. So I get a chest x-ray. And that can tell me, yes, they do, or no, they don't have pneumonia. And, and why does this matter? Why does that chest x-ray matter? And you know, I'm using chest x-ray as an example. It could be anything. It could be a stool test, a saliva test, a thyroid test, a blood test, whatever, right? The reason why I ordered a chest x-ray is because the results of that test determine a fork in the road. They help me, uh, they help me navigate what this treatment plan is going to be. If the person has pneumonia, there's a, a certain treatment that they may need. If they don't have pneumonia, they may need a different form of treatment. And so that chest x-ray was ordered appropriately. It was ordered to confirm or to refute a suspicion. And the results of the test were going to determine or help to determine what the appropriate treatment is. So that to me is a, is a test that's ordered rationally uh, with a good, uh, a, a, you know, a good rationale. A lot of times, natural doctors of all sorts, MDs, NDs, et cetera, just shotgun and order every darn thing that there is in the hopes that they catch something. It's like taking a big net in the ocean and hoping that you catch something rather than being laser focused. And um, that's not the way that I operate. I think I, I, I operate in a more, um, it's a little more elegant the way that I like to do it. And it also turns out it saves people money. Um, and you only get the answers to the questions that you really need the answers to. So I hope that answers your question, does it? Yes. Are there any particular functional medicine tests that you find exceedingly revealing that we may not even recognize or somebody that, that, that has mysterious unresolved symptoms? Is there something that could actually shed light on what those symptoms might be? I'm thinking particularly of any of the hair analysis that we're looking at or any of the functional medicine testing that uses the urine, for example. 
Yeah, absolutely. So this is not to, I didn't mean to suggest that, that the functional medicine tests aren't useful. They're just useful when you know what you're sort of looking for. So you're absolutely right to suggest that going looking for underlying infections, right? Occult infections, which can be done in the blood. It can be done in the stool. It can be done in the urine. It, wherever one might suspect that infection might be, could be useful. And those infections may not always be the kind of the, the prototypical infections. We can go looking for yeast and mold and fungus and uh, parasitic infections, Lyme disease. These sorts of things can definitely help be helpful in revealing an underlying cause of an otherwise befuddling illness. Um, you're also right to suggest that heavy metals, um, which can be detected both in the urine, uh, sometimes in the blood, depending on the test, and the metal, uh, and in the hair can also be useful. Um, sometimes there's also hormonal abnormalities, whether they are related to the thyroid gland, to the, uh, to the uh, adrenal gland or to the ovary or testes that can be useful and those can be checked in blood, urine, and saliva. Um, and those are all kind of part of the functional medicine laboratory test matrix. You can also do uh, analyses of, of the stool for the presence of the microbiome, which organisms live there, which organisms don't live there, that can be useful. Um, Looking at into the breath even is a newer thing where we're looking for the presence of uh, compounds that are the product of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So yeah, absolutely. Like if a if a patient has a set of symptoms that are unresolved and 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 befuddling, right? They're not un well understood. It's a diagnostic conundrum. Then yeah, we go looking, um, and we go looking in the most appropriate place first. Um, so what are you seeing? If there's a pattern of health, we're in 2020 now, what differs from the patient that you saw in 2010, let's say 10 years ago or five years ago, in terms of what, you, what they're presenting now? Do you see more fatigue? Are we seeing more thyroid issues? Are you seeing more fibromyalgia? You, you're practicing in Connecticut. Do you see an uptick in, in tick-borne diseases? No double entendre uh, intended or perhaps intended? Do you see any more lines because of Connecticut? I'm just curious to see the pattern of health that you're observing. Yes, absolutely. So uh, I would say all of the above. I mean, one of the things, uh, you know, to, to shine the light on 2020 right now, um, we are in uncertain, troubling, uh, challenging times, right? And so that, and that's been rather acute in the last several months, for all kinds of reasons, but it's also, um, I think one of the biggest patterns that I'm seeing is that people are stressed um, in all kinds of ways, whether yes. it is related to pandemics or tensions, uh, racial tensions, economic tensions, um, uh, and, and even this kind of widespread problem of, of loneliness, um, e despite the fact that we are connected through social media, people um, feel increasingly lonely and that causes a stress. We are by our very nature sort of uh, a, a tribal species. We do best when we are with each other um, and supported by each other. And I think if I'm seeing anything, it is kind of an, a, a, a slow epidemic of people feeling more and more isolated over the last 10 years. And that's become even acute in the last several months. Um, and that stress puts a tax on the adrenal gland. Um, we're not supposed to function in that environment. And then that adrenal stress and all of the hormonal dysfunction that, that, that flows out from that stress um, is an underlying risk factor for just about everything you can imagine. So fibromyalgia, joint pain, uh, cognition problems and memory problems, mental and emotional problems, anxiety and depression are, you know, I, I would say if, if there's one thing that's really decidedly different from my training, I would say that now 
almost every case that I see has an overlie of anxiety and depression as a either a primary or a secondary or tertiary complaint. Um, it's it's an it's an epidemic that we're going to have to contend with. And what do you do about it? Well, uh, I, I think the, the the good naturopathic answer is to treat the underlying cause, right? You know, I think um, we it's it's it would be unfair to suggest that every person with depression or anxiety or whatever it is, irritable bowel syndrome, fibromyalgia, has the same presentation because they're all different people. You know, I, I, I like the, the metaphor or the, the colorful image of, I, I say this all the time, I've never seen a disease come walking into my office. You know, it's never a heart disease that comes walking in or a cancer or fibromyalgia. It's always a person who has that disease. And I think that gets lost in the in the Western medical context all too often. You know, the story of the doctor who says, oh, there's there's MS in room two. And it's like, it's not MS in room two. It's a it's a lady who has right. MS in room two. And I think that's a very important distinction. Patients can sense the difference. So to your question, anxiety, depression, whatever the case may be, I sit down and I talk to the person, right? Uh, I run appropriate laboratory tests. I do appropriate physical exams and I treat that person. And so if that person has nutritional deficiencies that might help to explain it because their diet is bad, then I try to augment, uh, fortify them with, with, uh, with nutritional therapy. If they have familial problems, psychosocial problems, I try to help them find, you know, use cognitive behavior strategies or behavior modification strategies to help them solve those. Um, if they if their diet's bad, I try to improve it. If they don't exercise enough, I try to encourage them to do that. So treating the underlying cause of the problem. And in that way, one patient with depression might get a treatment plan that looks rather different than the next patient who has the same diagnosis. And that I think is a fundamental difference between the naturopathic approach and the conventional medical approach, whereby every person with the same disease gets the same treatment plan, basically. So do you work hand in hand with, with uh, your medical colleagues that are NDs? Do you find that there's a, a greater acceptance of naturopathic physicians in this day and time? Absolutely. And I'd, I'd say that that's changing every day. And it's, it's actually, it's, it's serendipitous that you asked that question because right before I called you, I got a call uh, at my office from a nephrologist, a kidney doctor um, at Yale. Um, and Yale nephrologists are Nephrology is a, is, a, is a very complex, exciting, and interesting field, and it's extremely complicated. Nephrologists are some of the smartest doctors that are out there, just because mm. the physiology involved in, 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 in the kidney is, uh, is, is absolutely mystifyingly complex. Interesting. So I have great, great respect for nephrologists. So this nephrologist called me, and I, I was surprised to see his name on the, uh, on the, the message uh, my message a little clip there out at the front desk and I said well I wonder what this is about so I called him and you know what he said the first thing he said was oh I'm so glad that you called me back I need some advice wow like, wow that's interesting what do you need advice about he had a complex patient and this patient had been through the litany of, of conventional pharmaceuticals and was still not doing well. And he wanted to talk to me about an idea that his patient had which was about an herbal medicine which, and was, how which to, was what by the way so the herbal medicine that she was interested in is, <laughs> uh, is, is, is called glyceryzoglabra. It's licorice root. Mm -hmm. And um, the case was fascinating. The case was, the, what, do you want to talk about this case for a second? It was really yeah, interesting. Yes, I think, I, I think my listeners will find this fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So the, the call from the nephrologist comes in and he has a complicated case. The case is of a woman who 
after she eats, in, in medical terms, she has postprandial hypotension. What that means is after she eats, her blood pressure drops, and it drops so much that she can't function for several hours. Huh. So this is an unsustainable way of living. And there, there's some, there's reasons why she sees a kidney doctor. It's a complex scenario. Food hits the stomach, blood rushes to the stomach to help digest the food. Um, it causes this reflexive decrease in her blood pressure and she becomes incapacitated. So he's tried every drug under the sun to try to help her with this um, and nothing's working or is, is nothing's working well and she's not tolerating some things either. So she comes up with the idea of licorice root. Licorice mm -hmm. root contains a compound called glycyrrhizin and glycyrrhizin can, uh, can elevate blood and, pressure. Exactly right. Yep. It can lower potassium levels in the serum. It has some complex physiologic actions that are pretty well understood. And this woman wanted to try licorice. Mm. And so she asks her conventional doctor. Now, I mentioned that he's really smart and he is. And one of the smartest things about smart people is that they recognize the end of their own um, experience, knowledge, and training. Yes, yes, yes. And yes. So they know what they don't know. They know what they don't know, precisely. And so he says, licorice root, interesting. I know something about that, mm. but I don't know enough about it to feel safe giving it to you. Let me call Dr. Levitt. And he did. And so he called me and we chatted about it. It was just maybe 20 minutes ago, 30 minutes ago. And um, yeah, so we'll, we'll see. I mean, the, the patient's now going to start licorice at my recommendation. I gave him some dosing and some, some particulars. And uh, well, we'll have to all have to come on again and let you know how it worked out. <laughs> oh, how interesting! Are there yeah. any other are there any other popular herbs that you prescribe for certain conditions? Can you explain them a little bit to our listeners? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, we we could be here all day with that. I mean, there's there's many popular herbs. I'm a I'm a plant nut. Um, <laughs> and, uh, let me just see if I if I sort of dig through my data bank of the the herbs that I use. I would say. Um, Probably turmeric, curcuma longa is an herb that I use maybe more than most others um, because of its profound anti-inflammatory activity. Inflammation is such a primary root cause of so many different problems and the inclusion of turmeric either in food or in its more uh, fancy pharmaceuticalized forms can be extremely useful. Um, for Do you reducing... like tinctures, uh, alcohol derived, water distilled? Is there any specific type of turmeric? I, I love tinctures. Um, I'm not sure my patients love tinctures so much. You know, um, if it was up to me, I would use tinctures in a, in a kind of the old, the old hippie way, right? The old, uh, uh, you know, classic herbal medicine way. I find them, um, yes, they're very close to the earth in that way. So they appeal to me, but they tend to be difficult to get down. So um, for practical purposes and for sort of meeting my patients where they are, I tend to rely on capsules. Um, when it comes to turmeric, one of the one of the limits that you, the problems that you bump up against is it's not terribly well absorbed. So there's a few different turmeric extracts that have been um, processed in ways that increase the bioavailability. Uh, I'm a fan of this one proprietary extract called BCM95 curcumin. Mm. I'm a fan of Mariva curcumin. Yes. Uh, there's a, a few different varieties that are, that are formulated for enhanced absorption. So I, um, I use those, those regularly. Um, combining turmeric with black pepper, the piperine uh, in black pepper also enhances the absorption, not just of turmeric, by the way, but of other things as well. Interesting. Nobody recognizes that. So the turmeric that you use, one of those brands that you spoke about, I think has the essential oil of turmeric, which people are not aware of. Indeed. Yes, in, indeed. Uh, BCM95 does contain. Yep. 
besides turmeric, if you were to do your top three, turmeric number one, number two would be? Uh, I would have Boswellia high on the list as well. That's frankincense, um, mm. uh, another uh, anti-inflammatory um, and, um, and, and very useful in people. I see a lot of people with orthopedic musculoskeletal problems. So uh, Boswellia is also high on the list um, of, of herbal medicines that I use. Um, I think something so simple as ginger, um, profoundly useful in so many different problems. I use ginger all the time for gastrointestinal problems. Um, that's three. Um, peppermint, <laughs> peppermint is another one I use both in its pure form in, in the form of tea and in enteric coated forms. I use a lot of peppermint. I use licorice both in its raw form, like we discussed that complex case, and also in a form that doesn't contain yes. the compound that elevates blood pressure. That's called DGL that you and your listeners may be familiar with. I use a lot of that for GI problems, um, including heartburn, acid reflux disease. So what do you eat, Dr. Josh? So I've, I've heard what you do with many of your clients, which I, um, patients, which I <clears throat> totally uh, approve and, and totally recognize and totally would agree with. But what do you eat? Now, you've got a family. Tell us a little bit about your family life. You've got several children, if I'm not mistaken. I do. Yes, I have three children. Um, they are uh, all teenagers they're all going to be in high school this year oh my um, goodness from 18 down to 13 oh my um, goodness. yeah so uh it's a it's a lively household and they're 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 great uh, my wife amanda is also a naturopathic doctor um and so yes we and 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 i would say that we very much practice what we preach um and so i eat a minimally processed plant-based diet um and what that means is that i um i eat a lot of vegetables um, fruits, beans, nuts, seeds, whole grains, um, very, very low amounts of processed foods, low amounts of kind of simple carbohydrates, processed carbohydrates, baked goods, and that sort of thing. Um, and, but there is all, and I, and for me personally, and this is not something that I'm advocating for everyone, but I don't eat um, animals. I don't eat uh, land animals like cows or pigs uh, or birds like chickens or turkeys either. I get most of my protein from plants. Um, I do eat some amount of eggs and I eat some amount, you know, modest amounts of eggs and dairy. Um, so it, it's not that it's my, my diet's completely devoid of animal protein, but, um, but, but much less than the typical average American. And it's not, and I, I want to make this point. It's, it, it, I, I don't believe in sort of martyring oneself for the, for the, for the cause, for their dietary cause. Um, my daughter, uh, my middle one is a baker and yesterday she made strawberry rhubarb pie from mm. scratch. She mm. made the dough, she made the, the whole thing. Right. And it was fantastic. So yes, here I am a naturopathic doctor. I eat a mostly plant-based diet, lots of vegetables, fruits, beans, nuts, seeds, and whole grains. And last night I had two servings of homemade strawberry pie with vanilla ice cream. Um, and so the point there is that I'm not, um, it's not, it's not fanaticism, right? There's room, You're not an extremist. Not at all. And I, I wouldn't advise anybody to be one. Um, you know, uh, I, I just don't think that that is, is health promoting in the way that I like to promote health. So my next question to you will be the following. I know that Dr. Peter Diadamo is not far down the road in my home state of Connecticut, where you currently practice and teach at Yale School of Medicine. He's a proponent of the blood type theory. How do you stand on that? 
Yeah, Peter is a genius. Um, he is uh, such a fascinating history. His father was a naturopathic doctor who kind of got started with the blood type. Um, and Peter really kind of brought it out to the public in a big, big way. Um, it's fascinating, just a quick diversion that we're seeing right now in the midst of this global pandemic with coronavirus, that there are quite clear indications that blood type, the different blood types, A, yes. B, O, et cetera, confer different risks uh, of severe disease. It turns out that type A's have it, have it worse when it comes to coronavirus. Um, and so this is, this is actually put, put Peter back into the spotlight saying, <laughs> maybe there's something to this, you know? Um, I think, I, I think, that yes, of course, there's something to it. Um, I think that the blood, you know, the, the, I, I, I also think that there's reason for me to believe that part, parts of it go a little bit too far. Um, and let me explain what I mean by that. Clearly, we are genetically different and the different blood types that we have confer different risks, whether it's to coronavirus or to other illnesses. I think that's very, very clear. One of the objections that I have, and this is not really an objection, just an observation, is that if you look at the dietary plans that are common to all the different blood types, um, what you'll see is a well, let me put it this way. What you won't see is lots of cheeseburgers, fries, and Diet Cokes. You know, you won't see lots of Snickers bars and highly processed foods on any of the dietary plans. And so I think for a lot of people, regardless of the blood type, if you eat a minimally processed kind of whole foods sort of diet, wh whether it includes meat or not, and avoid the highly processed Franken foods that are available at fast food restaurants and in the in the center aisles of the grocery store, you'll do better. Um, and so I think some people do better because of specific um, protein related dysfunctions that are specific to blood type. And some people do better just because they got the junk out. Um, and so that's my feeling about it. Interesting. And so what is your blood type? My blood type is B positive. You like that one? B positive. Well, you and I could give each other some blood because that's my blood type. All right. And it's interesting as a B blood type, I have to eat animal food. So I think we're all created differently biochemically. That is, it's very interesting. But I will tell you something about the B blood types that, that I found fascinating because I actually did a book about blood types and metabolic types and the work of William Donald Kelly was called Your Body Knows Best. It was written in 1996. I learned that the B blood types have an interesting way of processing stress. We produce a lot more cortisol than other blood types. And that was almost life-changing for me. So reducing my stress levels as a very B-oriented type A blood type, <laughs> I think was, uh, was just about life-changing. So that's- Yeah, that's great. That's, 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 that's really interesting. That's, uh, it, I, I grew up in Southern California and um, I have, I, I'm, I'm a surfer. I, you know, I grew up in beaches of Southern California and I have a kind of a, a, a way about me that's sort of born of where I, where I grew up, which is, what a lot of people would just sort of describe as kind of a chill, you know, uh, kind of a relaxed <laughs> way of being, which is not what people are used to in Connecticut, you know, in correct, New York, correct, so correct. Area, people are used to a little bit more hustle and a little more, more fire. Um, and so I, and I feel like that kind of like surfer vibe, that kind of chill vibe kind of, um, very good kind of helps you. me, helps me with, my, <laughs> with my B blood type cortisol disposition. So I appreciate that. Thank very, you. Very, very interesting. So why would somebody come to see a naturopath instead of a medical doctor? Why would they choose you over an MD? Oh gosh, what a great question. I, I think that the main thing that's a, that's a huge driver of the, of the sort of feedback that we get at our office, not just me, but the rest of our clinicians is that this is a place where people feel heard. 
that's the that's probably the main thing they feel like they're treated like a human being there's ample time to have honest discussions about what underlies not just a sort of pill for every problem sort of approach so that's a that, that's probably a main driver people just want to sit down with a doctor that's smart and and kind and wise and can sort of listen to them and make them feel heard and then from there they want there's increasing attention people just don't want a pill for every problem they want to have some purchase over their they don't want their health to just be the responsibility of their doctor they want to take some control and they want guidance in that regard about what to eat and what not to eat what supplements to take uh, to navigate the confusing landscape of the supplements at the health food store um and so it, and it and it really doesn't matter what problem that they have and like i said before there's no there's no problem, medical problem I've ever seen that's come walking into the office without there being a person in whom it resides. And so the we're not intimidated by complex, we're not intimidated by, by chronic um, uh, or severe problems because they all exist in people and that's what we treat is people. So you work with a, a group of naturopathic physicians or people from other um, specialities? Yeah, in my practice, there's five doctors, um, and all of them are, are naturopathic doctors like me, different different schools um, and graduations at various times. Two of those doctors are also acupuncturists as well. Lovely. Uh, kind of dual, dual trained. So yeah, a, a pretty full offering. Um, there's there's not a lot in the natural medicine world that we can't weigh in intelligently on here. So if somebody were to find a naturopathic doctor or wanted to locate the best naturopathic doctor in, in their area, is there a particular website? Is there an organization that they can uh, Google? It's a great question. Um, and, and the answer is yes. Uh, the, the, the national organization that is the membership uh, association for naturopathic doctors is called the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians, the AANP. And their website is naturopathic.org. Um, and that's the place where you'll find uh, board certified licensed naturopathic doctors who have attended an accredited school, passed a national certifying board exam, um, and are trained in the way that I'm that, that I've been trained. That doesn't mean that they're good. <laughs> it doesn't mean uh, that they'll help you necessarily, but it means that they at least meet that criteria because of what I mentioned or alluded to before about the differences in state licensure from, from state to state, it's very easy for people to sort of slip in, in in what we call unlicensed states, call themselves a naturopathic doctor, but they don't have the same training as someone like I have. Uh, and so the AAMP is a filter um, that, that, will, that will screen that out for you. Do you do long distance consultations if any of our listeners wanted to contact you directly? Yeah, th they are available. There are some there are some parameters we have to be we have to be careful of. Um, although I am a naturopathic doctor with a license on the wall here in the state of Connecticut, depending on where the patient is, um, I, I'm probably not able to quote be their doctor. Um, and so if we're going to the answer, the short answer is yes, I can provide telemedicine services as can the other doctors in my practice, but we need to do it as an educational consult consultant um, rather than as a physician because of insurance and uh, legal reasons. We have to kind of separate ourselves from our doctor role and provide a consulting or educational service uh, as opposed to being their doctor. And we have informed consent forms that, 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 that clarify all of that. Express all that. Yeah. So what's up next for, Dosh for Dr. Joshua Levitt? What, what is on the horizon for you before I let you go? Oh, uh, gosh, that's a good question. I, um, 
hopefully we'll get out of this kind of lockdown sort of scenario, get back to seeing patients uh, here in the office. Are you still uh, on lockdown, by the way? Um, we are uh, opening up, I would say. Things are opening up in Connecticut. Our numbers right now are doing, are looking actually quite good compared to other places in the country. Um, and so we're feeling a little bit more liberated here, certainly than they are in places like Florida and, and Texas at the moment. Um, so getting our kind of business, getting back to business as usual uh, here at the office is going to be one thing. Um, I'm always doing lots of writing, um, formulating products uh, for, for a company that I founded and co-owned called Up Wellness. Um, always looking for new and interesting products there. Writing, consulting. Um, I'm, I'm working on another uh, another book related to the to the approach that I take with patients, um, especially as uh, as relates to the, the 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 modern world we live in and how our bodies are just not accustomed for it. Um, so that's a that's a an area that I'm really really putting a lot of intensive interest into now. So more writing, more consulting, more videos, more summits, all that. Well, how do people get in touch with you? Where can they find you? Oh gosh, um, there are several different places. Um, I. Uh, like I said, mentioned briefly, um, upwellness.com. Upwellness is a is a company that I that I started several years ago, um, and there's a lot of content there that I've created and my team has created and uh, products as well. Um, Dr. Josh at upwellness.com is an email address that I use um, for our customers over there. Um, here at the office, my website is uh, the office in Connecticut is called Whole Health, and that's wholehealthct.com um, is my clinic website. And those are two places to get started. Oh, I like that. So let me thank you so much for being my guest. Is there anything else we should say as we say goodbye? Oh gosh, I think we covered a lot of ground today, Anne Louise. It was it was a real it was a, a privilege and a pleasure to be here with you. Um, I think we covered it. Well, thank you because the privilege is mine, and I want to thank all of my listeners for tuning in once again to the First Lady of Nutrition podcast. I'll see you next time, and until then, be well, be safe, be healthy. Bye bye for now.